Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. How does a couple rebuild this kind of tags on how does a couple rebuild trust when the addict was in recovery for 18 months yet still lying this goes back to this is one of the people that go no he's not in recovery if he's still lying to you and gaslighting the entire time he may not be acting out doesn't sound like he even stopped that but that to me is like nope it's not recovery so you can't build trust with somebody that's lying right you cannot rebuild for trust if you look what is trust it's a belief that when this person is with me or when they're away from me, I can, they will respect and honor their word and their commitments. So what happens in our relationships is I suddenly realize that you don't have my back. You're not going out in the world and making sure that I don't get hurt. You're actually doing things that leave me getting hurt. And so I can never trust someone who I know is continuing to go out in the world or in front of their computer and hurt me and let me down. Trust is only built by, and I think I have a, an equation for this, Um, honest and reliable actions over time. I have to act in a reliable and honest, integrous fashion, and I have to do that over time. So there is no recovery unless you've got a lot of time. And this is why I wrote Out of the Doghouse, which is a great book for men to read. Well, it's a book for any man who's hurt a woman's, broken a woman's heart. But really, I think that we often think, well, it's they know, and it's been out for a while, and I've been working on it. Why haven't they forgiven me? And we don't understand that it takes a very long time, not just of stopping the behavior, but of you feeling safe with us and, and that we're being honest. So trust, no, you're not going to restore trust. If this just happened that you found out the lying was going on after 18 months of being in recovery, it's going to be a year or more before you can rebuild trust. In fact, right now, this is not the right question. I say to every single partner in every single partners groups, and I'll say it here, you have three jobs, you spouses, during the first year of our recovery. Number one, to get angry at us and be as angry as you need to be. You don't get to hit us or tell us our lives are not worth living, but you can be angry. Number two, you need to decide whether you want to be with us or not. Is this the right relationship as you work through your anger and your fear by observing us and seeing what we're doing and figuring it out? And the third thing is to take care of yourself. You know, you can't love us into recovery. You have to love yourselves and we have to love ourselves into recovery. Remember that two people who have been in this situation, I can't turn to my spouse. Look, you're my best friend. You're my spouse. You know, I want to turn to you with every problem, but I'm the one who hurt you. And so I can't, you know, you ask about this question, what is recovery? It's turning to the people who are not angry at me, who are not hurt, who are objective. And it's the same for the spouses. You can't turn to us and confide in us or get our support because you don't trust us. And so this is why as much as you guys don't want to, and it's foreign to you, you have to turn outside your relationship to supported others, uh, therapists, support groups, because your partner can't be the supportive person anymore. You don't trust them. So, and I don't know if this is a male addict, female partner. I don't know, but there are resources for both male and female partners on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. There are drop-in groups. I'm glad they're you're free. here. They're free. They're free. We do. But I also, free. if this is a male, this is the kind of client that we work with at Seeking Integrity Treatment Program. This is what we help with. So, so feel free to reach out to me, Tammy, T-A-M-I at SeekingIntegrity.com. I'm happy to give you information. At the very least, we have a work group starting for sex and porn addiction 101 
uh, starts April 7th. It's a six week course, 90 minutes. And there's a, there's some foundation pieces, some education, and that has been a good, a good dipping your toe in, but you know, you, you cannot build trust in a relationship by yourself. And I, I just really, and by the way, that course, that series that we do online is based on sex addiction 101 and the workbook that goes with it. So we take them through like six or eight exercises and, you know, over the course of month and a half. And then if they want to go on, they can do more, you know, whatever that is. I do want to say to all of you, by the way, we do advertise our product. We say, I talk about books, Tammy talks about, and I'm not just talking about all the free stuff. I think 80% of what we do is free. But if we get a few people who go to our treatment center, that pays for the 80% of everything else to lose tree, that everything else we do that's free. So I'm not shy at all about, first of all, I think the work is amazing. And whatever level you get it on, whether you're going to free podcasts or free groups, you decide to enter things that we charge you for, just know that um, our focus is on helping as many people as we can at every level we can. And I know for a fact that most of you, well, many of you can't afford therapy. Many of you will never make a treatment center, but if we can help, you know, for free online, I mean, that's a gift that, that we can give you. Um, the podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction has over 800, well, was it 700, almost 700,000 700, downloads? Uh -huh. You looked at the numbers today. I so did. people are going there and they're using that podcast, which is free to learn and guide themselves. And so we give a lot of things away for free. And so if you hear us say, you know, think about this course, because I'm a little self-conscious about it. I want you to understand that we're not just on here to sell our wares, but it is important to us because that is how we get to do all this free stuff. So I'm making excuses but for it's us, not Tammy, just but... a, uh, Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you because like You're these right. are resources. It's not like, this isn't selling wares. This is giving you valuable resources. Where are you, the work group, $350 for six 90 minute sessions. Where are you going to get that with people that will guide you through the Sex Addiction 101 workbook? I, you know, I don't know anywhere else. So, so it's the kind of, um, resources that are really meaningful. I had a therapist that reached out that shared about a client that the only thing he was doing was going through the level one and, le and then level two work groups. And she said, I can see a difference. He had by that point strung 60 days together, which he was unable to do prior to that time, you know, even working with the, and this is a good therapist, you know, so, so it doesn't, it matters. And for, I'm sorry, but I, I spent way more than that kind of money on my acting out. I, have to believe that I could scrape together $350 for something that would help me change. So, well, actually, I want to go back to and say that I should not be uh, in any way uncomfortable about selling things because what we're selling, I don't think is a better treatment. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've opened multiple treatment centers. There are, is no better work that I know of going on with this. And so when we're selling and certainly not at the prices we charge. So I think if I'm promoting things, it's because I don't want you to go to that crappy therapist. I don't want you to go to that lousy treatment center because we know there's lots and they'll charge you a fortune um, and they'll be very nice to you, but they may not get it and we get it. And so I feel, actually, I feel good about it, but we need to go back you, to our volunteer work. Yes, yeah, so, you should, because I mean, I hear all the time of people that went to other treatment centers and it didn't work well, out we and they them. went, yeah. So yeah, we, yeah we do get them hopefully if they still have time and money. So, okay. All right. Next question. Additional disclosure, 13 months after disclosure. I assume that was a formal disclosure. Three, four additional things disclosed. Two were expected related to past sexual experience with men. Two were related to violence against women. One girl met at a party and threatened, jumped out of moving car. Thereafter picked up a prostitute and threatened her. If she did not give oral, she did. He dropped her off. No pay. Same night. Then two days later, he said he, he has one more. There was an innocent girl taken by the arm back of the store, threatened to take her pants off, told her 
to give him oral or he would kill her. She did. He left. This was 35 years ago before we met within a year. I am in shock and find myself hypersexual and lost. What is what to do? Well, hypersexual means having a lot of sex. And I have a feeling you don't mean hypersexual. I have a feeling you mean hyposexual, meaning you don't want everything to do with sex. I mean, I don't know what that means. But um, so there are so many. I'm not sure. What is the question? Like, is what is the question in here exactly? Tammy? What to I do? want to answer the, the, Yeah, the question is what to I'd do. I'd send this man to treatment. I mean, honest yeah. to God. I mean, well, I mean, obviously there's offending behavior from the past. And uh, that doesn't mean the person is, you know, 35 years ago might mean they were 19, they were flushed with testosterone, they did some really stupid things or stupid things. But this is, some of this is kind of violent. And Very so, violent. and you don't just become, that doesn't just go away. We become more mellow with time and our behaviors change. But, um, you know, I have to, I've had to say to a couple of clients in treatment, oh, so you raped someone. Or maybe you entered your spouse while they were sleeping. You raped someone. And it's not a pleasant thing when the guys I talk to have to realize that they've raped something. It doesn't mean that they are serial sex offenders. It does mean that maybe they were a sex addict and they were drinking and they, you know, whatever it is. But um, I, I just think there's... I don't know, Tammy, there's so much here. And the other piece is how could you, how could anyone not disclose this on an initial disclosure? How is it possible? Because she said additional, or he said additional disclosure, which means this came out later. And I'm a little worried about the person who hides or doesn't tell you that, that they've, you know, been sexually violent with people or sexually abusive to people. Forget that he had another affair or she saw another part. I mean, this is stuff that I can't imagine doing a disclosure and not talking about. So Honestly, I still would not trust this person. No offense. Um, I think that this is someone who should be in treatment or at least in meetings four days a week. And, you know, this person needs a very structured way of working with a lot of support. And my guess is that if they were able to not tell you about this in the beginning, then they're able to push it out of their minds, too, and minimize what it meant um, if they cannot tell you. So if this is second disclosure and you're hearing stuff like this, I think it's very concerning is what I, I would say. I don't know what Tammy's thoughts are. Well, and, and there's a tag on in the chat to us. And, but part of it is if your way of coping is with sex, then of course you're going to mm. be wanting to go to your numbing out. Uh, so, so that, that makes sense. But yeah, th this person needs, needs more help. So, but I'm glad you're here. Um, make oh. sure you're on the alumni group tomorrow. Okay. So someone, I do want to, so this is actually someone who went through treatment, they're saying, and they have a question about, I wanted to go back to it because they- Oh, I just uh, put it said, in the answer, check it out. No, no, I'm looking at what they chatted. Uh, they said, I do find myself wanting sex just back from two weeks of treatment. Well, duh. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, you're human. And the way we connect as sex addicts and feel comforted and like we're not going to abandon and like we can tolerate the difficulties of recovery is by having sex. I mean, that is our go-to thing. So of course you want to have sex. And even if it's just your partner, uh, I can't tell you how many partners I work, run, work with who say, I felt like he or she wasn't even present when we were having sex with each other. Um, we do it, discourage sex for a short period of time when people get home. Uh, they don't really think about it. They're kind of like, oh, well, they're my spouse, so I can have sex with them. And we actually want them to take 30 days out, whatever is most useful for that person. Because I know as an active sex addict, I didn't even know who I was if I wasn't flirting or racing somewhere to find someone or who are we and what is our life about uh, if we're not doing that. So uh, I would absolutely 
put a boundary around this and I would talk to my spouse about this. I thought it was a spouse. It's interesting because spouses often want to have more sex with us once they find out, not all of you, but there is sort of a sometimes, okay, now I know everything. Now I know what's going on. Now I know who this person is. Now they finally opened up to me. I think it's both. I think, I think it's this, and and we, Uh, we need to keep moving on. I think it's both. I think the disclosure happened to this person and he, he's just back from treatment. So it's, I suspect that both of them have some, some issues. So, but I hope well, you are working with a, a qualified therapist, you know, as part of your aftercare, I hope you're working with a qualified therapist too. By the way, the way, I'm sorry, Tammy, one of the reasons I acted out was I wanted to make sure I never got abandoned. There was always somebody there. And so on some level, I think, you know, uh, when we come home to our spouses, we use sex as reassurance. You know, sex is a symbol of something for us. It's not the thing. So if I came back from treatment, I wanted to sex with my partner every day. I would think, wow, I wonder what's going on with that. I wonder what the motive is underneath here. I'm afraid they're going to go away. For spouses, it's often like, well, I'm afraid he or she is going to do all this stuff. So I'm going to have a lot of sex with them. And then they won't want to do it anymore. And that, that isn't really the way out. Okay, next question. I would like to know how to manage treatment therapy recovery when my spouse does not believe in sex love addiction as an addiction. We are three plus years after D-Day. I have been in therapy since. Not all good therapists, my acting out has ceased from D-Day. That's great. I have slipped and masturbated, looked at porn a handful of times over the last three years, but had zero desire to revert back to online cheating, seeking in person, cheating, et cetera. My biggest problem is dealing with the emotional trauma and issues, which is blocking my communication with my spouse. I am a gay man uh, in a relationship with a trans man. Well, there's a lot there. Um, I do want to say, just to say it, that I, I mean, I have written 10 books, which is so crazy. Talk about addictions, but I wrote a book called Cruise Control, Understanding Gay Men and Sex Addiction. And I think when you live in a culture that is so surrounded, that is very different than heterosexual culture, that you need to really take a look at what is problematic about my behavior versus what is typical in this community. Um, So uh, I think the question is how, when my spouse doesn't believe it. And uh, so what I hear in that question is, if they only believed it, then what? You know, then they would be what? More forgiving, kinder, it doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. What matters is you take care of yourself. You do all the things you need to. You know, if I had, I don't know, is another way of saying it. Um, if I had an alcohol problem, my partner said, well, I don't think you drink that much. It's not really a big deal for me. But I knew it was destroying my life. Um, you know, I would make a commitment to change regardless of what my spouse had to say. In fact, I might think, well, my spouse doesn't fully understand. I've had many spouses say, I don't fully get it. It isn't a problem. Um, or, you know, whatever it is. And it's because they don't fully understand the depth of the problem or the reality of how compulsive it is and it'll come back and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, that's a bunch of stuff. Pammy? No, I'm just, but I hear you going, how do I manage my treatment therapy recovery with your, um, with your sponsor, with your recovery community? You do what you need to do you know, and I think it's fair to just say, I really need to do this for me before my recovery. And, you know, I, I, I will include you in wherever you want to be included, like on webinars, or, but all, but otherwise I have to do this for me. Just like Dr. Rob was talking about earlier, whatever I put in front of my recovery, I'm going to lose. So, so um, keeping recovery at the forefront is really beneficial. But I really think having worked with so many people, the essence of this question is, Um, if my spouse just understood this, 
then we'd have a different relationship or then you'd be treating me differently or you know what your relationship is what it what, what it is and if you're cleaning your crap up and you're working on yourself and what difference does it make whether your spouse believes in it doesn't believe in it it doesn't matter you are living on a road of recovery and i have to say you know there is a point and i say this to spouses um, and I'll say to you spouses, if we're really doing our work and working really hard and you can see it and you see us changing and you see and clear that we're not acting out. And, you know, some of us are very dedicated. I, I know I was for sure. Um, at a certain point, your, your anger becomes counterproductive. You know, as I said, your job is to be angry at us for a year. Absolutely. But at a certain point, if we're really working very hard and you continue to be so angry, you know, it's been a year, whatever we start to question. It's like, well, I'm doing what I need to be doing and I'm the best person I can be and I'm not acting out. And am I ever going to get any reward from this relationship? I know that was a year ago and I know I hurt you, but look at all I'm, you know, it's not like you have to reward me for what I'm doing, but at a certain point um, there has to be a beginning of a shift where partners aren't constantly doubting everything we do and questioning everything we do. um, Even though they feel that that's necessary for their safety. And, you know, you guys get a year longer if we don't do our thing but at a certain point, you have to understand that you're pushing us away more than you're inviting us in. And what I hear is, well, if I tell my partner all about it, they won't be as angry because they'll understand it's an addiction. And not, I'm not a bad person, but I have an addiction. It doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is you focus on yourself. Um, and they may never okay. believe it. Yeah. Next question. Hi, Dr. Rob. How would a sex addict work with religious shame and guilt from childhood upbringing and move forward into healthy sexuality? This happens so often. Well, it is absolutely true factually that we see more people in with all addictions, but especially sexual and intimacy disorders when they grow up in very, very conservative backgrounds. And that has nothing to do with the religion. It could be Christian, could be Muslim, could be Jewish. They're all all different sects and religions have very, some very, very rigid. And some of those more conservative environments will tell you that sex is bad. And you'll hear sex is bad, masturbation is bad, you know, all and, and sex becomes something that's shameful and to be feared. And part of the problem is when you get that at such an early age, it resonates for the rest of your life. And it's interesting to me that you ask this question, because when we treat drug addicts, most of the drug who have sex problems, almost all of them have been through a treatment center for drugs and alcohol. They've already been there. They've tried it out. But no one talked about because they don't know how or they're not thinking about about their sexual fears their sexual shame there and so they go out in the world and try to be sober on drugs or try to be alcohol or gambling but the root thing which is they hate themselves for their sexuality or parts of it drives them back to the um to the alcohol and drugs so how do you work with this you talk about all of it you write down all of it you find there are therapists who deal with religious abuse. And I think that, you know, that's something that's useful looking for. You can just Google it and you'll find some crazy people and some good people. But to me, this is no different than any kind of trauma. It takes dedicated work in reducing my own shame in life to understand that what happened to me left me with these problems, but I'm not a bad person. Um, living, not living in shame, but living in transition into self-love um, you can't fix what happened, but you can readdress how you look at it now and how you look at your life. And that's therapy and 12, again, 12 step and a lot of support. Yeah. Yeah. The messages of like this, you know, this is shameful can be replaced with, you know, this is, this is for me. But you'll always feel a little dirty. Yeah. You'll, I mean, you, sure. you'll always, yeah. but that's yeah. something to work, to talk to. Oh yeah. I feel this way, but I've learned differently. And, and then mm-hmm. you move on. Mm-hmm. 
When it comes to an addict disclosing a slip to their partner, what are the steps the partner can take to process? I find myself torn between wanting my partner to be completely honest about his slips and wanting to keep myself from being constantly hurt. Well, you should not be constantly hurt. I know that. I heard that too. You know, I was like, constantly. That is like a Number lot. one. I'm sorry. Well, number one is what is a slip? And a slip is what I would not tell my partner. And sorry, partners. Um, if I had a sponsor and I was working my 12-step program and I had a therapist and I drove through the wrong part of town or I got really, I was flirting with someone at work, nothing happened, but, or whatever it was, I would not tell my spouse. I don't think it's my spouse's job to hear every time I have a sexual attraction, every time I do something that probably isn't perfect. But when I slip, I need to tell them because that is the bottom line. They are trusting me to let them know if there's, you know, they're not going to find out a year later that I was went back to seeing sex workers, they're going to know. And what the spouse said, I think is extremely important because all over time, many of you will say, if they do this again, I'm going to leave them. You know, if they see the sex worker, they, and trust me, we're going to struggle with this. We may do it again, but what really matters is that we tell you, because I've seen every partner look up and say on some level, wow, I hate them. And this is not going to be a good night or a good week. But I love the fact that they told me because of the first time I can make decisions about my life and about what's going on with us based on truth and fact. So yes, I think that if someone is having slips, they shouldn't be so frequent that they're causing you constant hurt if they're slipping. And I mean, slipping, going into the depths of that behavior, they need a lot more help than they're getting and they need to take it more seriously. But if what you describe as a slip or whatever it is they're saying to you is, oh, I, I, you know, I talked to Susie online for a few minutes and I felt attracted to her or you know, I got a letter from my ex and I started reading it and fantasized and then I threw it away. You know, that's not something we necessarily have to tell you. And I know spouses want to know every single thing, but here's something I want to tell you, all of your spouses with the greatest love and respect that I have. It, it is part of your belief that if I ask this question or learn the answer to that question, that I'm going to feel better or things are going to get better. And the reality is it's not going to get better and nothing we tell you is going to make you feel better because this is a horrible situation. And one more thing, I think that spouses, one of the misunderstandings I think addicts have is we think, oh, they, they're asking these questions. They're going through my phone bill. They're doing all this stuff because they want to figure out if they should leave me or not. And they're looking to find that thing that's going to tell them they have to leave. And I don't think that's true at all. I think spouses are looking for reasons to not leave. They're looking to hopefully not find anything to know about, to realize they want to realize this is what happened. I can deal with this and I don't want to find out anything more so I can deal with this. Um, but when you leave your par partner constantly doubting, nothing's going to go forward. And yes, you have to be completely honest with your spouse. But if you're slipping that often, what your spouse needs to say is, I want you to go to a treatment center or I'm locking the door or it's great that you're being honest, but it's not okay to be honest, honest, honest and keep slipping. Like that's not the goal is to be honest. The goal is to stop the behavior and the honesty comes with it. I know, Tammy, is there anything else about that? No, but it ties into the next question with the looking for safety. I'm learning that I may have fallen into, this is what I'm learning, and let me tell you what you can read and learn. He feels micromanaged and now is telling me he needs space. Is that normal? I agreed to give him distance. I'm going to leave this one to you to start, Tammy. Well, it, to me, it, 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 I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were talking about you know check-ins, and I was like, if he's checking in with you and sharing things rather than you having to ask questions and and everything right. else, that's a, that's a very different thing. It's like the, the reporting the slips. If 
the addict is coming forward and, and sharing, that's a very different space than, you know, than the partner having to demand the information all the time. So to me, this is like, yes, you've learned, you get support, having him have um, sharing what he's learning and doing you know, that may, yes, uh, having the addict share what is going on could provide you with safety. And I think having that conversation of, you know, I understand you need some distance. Here's what will help me feel safe is if you're, you know, you initiate the conversation, you tell me a little bit more, I'd like to know, you know, so it kind of shifts the responsibility for that. And you may not feel as parental about, you know, here, read this book, do this, whatever. Um, it may, that may help. That was my thought. I'm glad this person's asking this question. I really like that because the emphasis could be, I keep throwing books at my partner and they won't read them. So I like that this per partner is questioning, you know, is this the right way to do it? Is this, you know, am I driving this person away? And, and I, I, you know, we say in the 12 step programs that it's a lot about attraction rather than promotion. And so I think that if you're reading a book that you think is useful, especially one of mine, because they're so useful, <laughs> just kidding. Um, if you're reading a book around this issue, you know, you might say to your partner, oh, I'm reading this book. And if you're interested, let me know. That's invitational. Maybe they've read the book. Maybe they know everything in the book. Maybe they don't need to read that book. You know, it'll make you feel better, but won't make them feel better. So I think being invitational is always helpful. I, I, there's a book on the books, but not here. You read this because I also would feel like, oh, this is mom and I've been a bad kid and now I have to study my homework, you know, and I don't think you want to be that in that role of mom or parole officer with your partner. Um, what else do they want to say about this? Um, oh, the other thing is what Tammy was talking about is when we work with our clients uh, in treatment, when they leave, they're going to have a sheet of paper that says, this is what I do on Monday, this is what I do on Tuesday, this is what I do on Wednesday, or certainly it's going to be in narrative form. And I tell all of the addicts who are in a relationship with a partner, I want you to go to the refrigerator and put up your schedule for recovery so your partner can see, oh, on Monday, you're going to this group, and at two o'clock on Thursday, you're doing therapy. And that is your reassurance. You, may, you shouldn't have to ask us what we're doing or how we're doing or what we're doing. We should be saying and showing you what we've done, and you should be able to see that without question. What are your thoughts about to what extent does the betrayed partner need to be involved with the sex addict recovery process, such as being mm -hmm. informed of which, when, essay, online meetings he or she is doing, booked CSAT sessions, blogs, webinars, you know, seeing and reading a, well, a week? I think we just answered that question, which is I think it's up to the addict to, you should never have to say, did you go to a meeting this week or are you going to your therapy? We are here to reassure you. If you were having to pull out of us what's going on, then I would have doubt if I were, why are you even having to ask me? Because you're asking me because you have doubt and I shouldn't leave you having doubt. You know, you should see me on the phone talking to someone at that meeting, going out to whatever it is. And if you don't see that, what I would say is I'm having trouble trusting you because I don't see you doing a lot of work here. Um, and I'm going to stay in that non-trusting place and still I, but I wouldn't say where'd you go and what you do. Yeah, that's not helpful. And I have shared this before too, but if the addict is pursuing their their sobriety and recovery with the same energy that they pursued their addiction, they're going to do very well and you're going to see it. So, okay, next question. My partner had massive amounts of trauma in addition to betrayal trauma from my porn addiction. And mm -hmm. she says she wants to support me in recovery, but she 
also pushes back against therapy, refusing to try and incorporate suggestions from couples therapists where she has to put in a bit of work and responds with, why do I have to do that? Why can't he just be better? And she talks about how my trauma has stunted me and stagnated me and acknowledges that she is stagnated, but acts like it does not affect our relationship. How would you recommend I try and address something like this with her so she does not shut down when I bring it up? That's a great well, question. That's a that's challenge. a really good question. Um, I want to read it again myself because I want to answer this really well. So first of all, I think that in the early stages of our work, it even in all, it's never my job to tell my partner to go to therapy. It's not my job. I can say, I think we would be doing better if we were both working on this process, but you need to be in therapy is a bad idea. And one of the most important things about our work, at least the way I do it, is I don't think couples should be in therapy at the beginning. Because in the first six months, really, what is the therapy? It's me saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I ruined your life. And the other person saying, screw you, screw you, you ruined my life. So in the beginning, therapy is really just about boundaries. It, your spouse has no, you cannot judge whether your spouse needs to go to therapy. It is not your job to focus on what they need. And if you feel that the the revived, that their therapy being revived and harming them is related to what they're going through now, then they will find a way to deal with it. But I think every time you say to a partner, oh, you need to do this, there, how do I say this? I'll tell you what spouses need. Addicts need direction, challenges, support, uh, contracts, agreements, and a lot of heavy duty therapy. Partners need to deal with the, with the partners need support. You've been violated, you've been victimized, you've been harmed by by the truth, by everything that's happened. And so it may well be that you're, that the partner thinks, oh, I got to get in there and do a lot of work or the relationship isn't going to work, or I got to do a lot of work, but he's the one who, or she's the one who did this to me. And now I'm supposed to go to therapy. One of the things I think those partners don't understand is I am not interested in partners doing any exploration of themselves or the relationship or any of it, because they didn't cause this. It's not their fault. We walk into the relationship with this. So what we've done is we've damaged someone else and we've harmed them and we further harm them by saying, well, we're never going to get along until you go to therapy. Again, that's trying to run someone else's life so I can be happy. I also hear in this, I don't think your focus is on her. What I hear is, how? what can I do to get our relationship to be better? You can't do anything. It's either going to be better or it's not. And who do you want it to be better for? Do you want your spouse? Maybe they need to be miserable and deal with trauma for six months before they're ready to go to therapy. Is your goal in getting into therapy to get your relationship to be better? Because that's not a good goal. You're getting the relationship to be better is working on yourself and being accountable and saying how much the work is helping you. And I think that people, if they're, if they're open to being guiding themselves into healing will be someone has a lot of trauma. They know what their issues are. Um, you're not helping. Uh, let me give you a good example. I love this example. It's really awful. I mean, I don't think I've ever said this. So back in the day, and I know we just stopped out. Um, my, uh, my, my spouse of 20 years was heavy, like quite heavy. Uh, now we're pretty thin, but at the time, you know, like 30, 40 pounds overweight. And I used to say to him, like, why don't you lose some weight? Or why don't you stop eating this? Or, you know, you've gained a lot of weight. Or, And I went to my therapist and she said, you know, that's abusive. I was like, why is that abusive? And she said, don't you think he already feels that? Don't you think he already feels bad about himself? And there you are saying, you know, well, if you'd only did this or you only did that, you know, I don't think it's helpful for us to go in and remind our partners what's wrong with them. Um, because they already know on some level, like, oh, you have a lot of trauma. This is being reengaged. I think they know that. 
And when they're ready for therapy, they will be. And I suggest you get off their back and start focusing on you because that's like more trauma. Um, so leave them alone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.